Yesterday, on the uh, Christian liturgical calendar, is the day that was celebrated kind of as the end of the Christmas season, a day called Epiphany. It's the day set apart by many Christians to mark the coming of the Magi, to find the infant Jesus and to worship Him. It's a celebration of the gospel going to the Gentiles um, and, and the peaceful rule of King Jesus extending to every corner of the earth. And so today as we kick off a new sermon series uh, on some key events in the life of Jesus related to giving and generosity, we'll start with the story of the gifts given for a king from this Gentile delegation from afar. And young worshipers, you, hopefully you had some clues as to what our sermon was going to be about this morning as we sang the song, We Three Kings. And you know probably some of you about the gifts that they brought. I want to ask you this. Why do you think that these foreigners, these guys from afar, why do you think they brought gifts to the baby Jesus instead of the Roman king over Judea? Why do you think that is? Consider that and write down your answer in your work for young worshipers. I'll invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word You can follow along in page 6 of your bulletin or in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, said, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us who know you now by faith to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face. Through Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? So I hope you know by now that I'm kind of a cards-on-the-table kind of guy, so I want to start this new sermon series by saying something obvious. We're going to talk about money. Well, not exactly. We're going to talk about gifts, gifts given to Jesus out of a heart of generosity. You probably know 
that there are many, many accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' generosity toward others, right? Like the whole story is about the generosity of Jesus' grace and humility to leave his place in heaven, to come to earth, to give his life for his people. And there are also many, many accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' generosity with his time, with his energy, when the crowds are pressing in on him, but he stays to heal and to minister. Or the generosity of spirit he demonstrates when he is constantly being patient with and forgiving his disciples. Jesus is clearly generous, which is why the Apostle Paul later reminds us to remember the gracious generosity of Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. He is full of self-giving and generous love toward his people. But there are a few accounts in the Gospels, five to be precise, where somebody gives something tangible to Jesus. And that ought to make us pause. Like, what does the Lord of creation need? What kind of gifts does he receive? What does he deserve? And what does that mean for a life on the road with him? Now, I will admit, like every preacher... When I get up here, there's a few nerves, and I get up here and start talking about giving and generosity and money because sometimes those topics can be taboo in the church. I get it. You probably would rather me be up here preaching Song of Solomon with your teenager sitting next to you. (laughs) But here's what we miss when we never talk about giving. We miss something that is so very clearly at the heart of Jesus at the heart of how he wants to work in his people. We miss a piece of ordinary discipleship on the road with him. We miss the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to reorient our desires in this city of arriving and achieving and accumulating. We miss the opportunity to be conformed instead to the image of Jesus, the self-giving one. And we miss the opportunity to talk about investing in a different kind of kingdom. Because generosity begins with a heart that is joyfully submissive to Christ's kingship, not greedy for power and position. That's really where we start when we talk about giving our treasure away, because it is about the, it is about the kingdom that we're citizens of, and the homage due to the great king of that kingdom. But where is this king to be found? The the story of the the Magi, the wise men, is one of the most familiar in the New Testament, at least if popular nativity scenes are any indication. It's also one that has deep roots in Christian tradition, in the liturgical calendar. Last night we gathered with some dear friends to liturgically reenact the story of the Magi, really celebrating the radical hospitality of King Jesus, to receive strangers and sojourners to himself. That's what this story is about. These Gentile philosophers, astronomers, magi from the East, they're called. We don't know much about their origin other than they came from far away, probably part of a royal entourage or a priestly order. And they're led by a star to seek the king of the Jews and to worship him, to pay him homage. So what do they do? Well, they set out in the direction of the star and they show up in Jerusalem. Of course they come to the capital. If there's a king, that's where he's to be found, in the capital. They start asking around, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, 
The ruler in this time of Judea is a man named Herod, who we'll talk about in a moment. But you can imagine he's not happy about the buzz created by these wise men. So Herod convenes a council of the best Jewish minds of his time, and he asks them where the birth of the Messiah was prophesied to take place. He's not a Jew himself, but he knows enough about Jewish hope that he knows that they're awaiting a Messiah and that that could cause some political issues for him. So he deputizes these wise men. He sends them to Bethlehem where the prophets foretold of the Messiah's birth. And he says to them, come back and report. And miraculously, as they go, the star they followed leads them to the exact place where the infant Jesus, no more than two years old, is now living with Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Now, where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem has a name in Scripture, to be sure, the birthplace of King David and the subject of messianic hope, but it was just a little town, really a village, a cluster of small dwellings. That explains why there was no room in the inn, right? It was not the kind of place that these magi expected to find the king. And this royal party shows up at the house. There's no entourage to greet them. There's no fanfare. They just find the child on his mother's lap. And and Herod is troubled by this. And not only Herod, but also all of Israel, all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. It, it It would appear that this newborn king born in some obscure little village in the outskirts He hasn't even been received by his own people. They don't know he's king. And all of a sudden, some astronomers from the east show up to worship him. Well, what's the point? The king is not to be found in places of power and prominence like Jerusalem, except when he goes there to die. And he's not welcomed by a triumphal procession of his own people, Except, again, when he goes to Jerusalem to die. No, instead, this king is born in obscurity and found by Gentile idol worshipers. The Lord continues to fulfill his promise of bringing strangers from all nations and gifts from all nations to lay at the feet of the king. The kingdom of God shows up sometimes in the most obscure places among the most unlikely people, doesn't it? In a few weeks, Stephen and I will head to Cambodia where we will visit New St. Peter's missionaries Luke and Soka Smith. And many of you know their story, maybe you don't. Luke uh, dropped into Cambodia in 2009 as uh, a single guy with our missionary organization. And uh, he decides, you know what, there's a lot going on here in the city, so I'm going to go to the remote villages outside of the city where there's not a lot of access to the church planting efforts there. And he shows up in this little village, and he begins to, to share the gospel with the adults there. And every one of them rejects his message. So, what does he do? He starts a youth group. He starts sharing the gospel with the children of the village and offering educational programs, and eventually... He plants a church where these first children that he evangelized are now thriving leaders and members in his church because the kingdom of God shows up in unlikely places and among unlikely people. Even among a ragtag group of strangers in the PCA here in East Dallas. You probably know this. 
but we're not a big church, right? Like this is Dallas, mega church, Mecca. But here we are, this little church for 20 years, preaching the gospel in our gathered worship and in our scattered callings, seven parishes spread out across numerous neighborhoods in our city. A friend pointed this out to me recently when he looked at the back of our bulletin, 21 different families somehow involved in church leadership. Thriving ministry to the poor and needy through your generosity to our diaconal funds. I mean, in 2023, we distributed something like $100,000 in alms strictly for mercy ministries. And here we are getting ready now to, to send out Noah in a few weeks and so forge a gospel partnership with Covenant Church in St. Louis. Not to mention the, the hundreds and hundreds of lives changed through ordinary ministry here over 20 years. When the kingdom of God shows up in unlikely places. And the king is certainly at work in this unlikely place and among you strange people. I put you in that category, certainly not me. The king is at work here. And make no mistake, the king is at work here not because we're so awesome. No, it has little to do with our status, our greatness, our merit, and everything to do with what sort of king he is. So here's a little secret, kind of peek behind the curtain. Everyone thinks there were three wise men? Probably not. We can still sing We Three Kings, that's okay. But some, of them, some folks think there were three wise men because of the three gifts given. But in truth, the wise men here were not likely kings themselves. They were, they were um, philosophers, astronomers, priests perhaps. And there were probably more than three of them. But this story actually is a tale about two kings. The first one comes on the scene as the fearful, despotic, maniacal ruler over Judea, Herod the Great. We read a moment ago that Herod was troubled when he heard that these strangers came looking for the king of the Jews. Actually, he was greatly distressed. Why? Well, here's something you have to learn about Herod the Great. He was a power-hungry maniac who would stop at nothing to see his place on the throne over Judea secure. Well, how did he get there? In about 37 BC, Herod gets appointed by the Emperor Augustus as ruler over all of Palestine. This is a common practice in ancient Rome for for Caesar to appoint local governors or rulers who had some level of autonomy in their regions. But here's the thing. Herod shows up. He knows the Jews are skeptical of him. And so to solidify his power... He marries a Hasmonean from the ruling Jewish class during the Hellenistic period. So he makes this marriage alliance, and then he starts to have Hasmonean Jewish babies. But his plan backfires. The Jews in the regions, they still don't trust him. So he becomes increasingly paranoid of a coup, and he destroys, he slaughters all the Hasmoneans, including his own sons. He puts them to death to protect his throne. Why? Because in Herod's power-hungry heart, there's only one king of the Jews. So when these strangers show up starting to ask questions about this new king, he loses it. And eventually, by the way, he ends up slaughtering all the male infants in the region for fear of losing his throne. That's the first king we're dealing with here. Power, greed, fear, murder, genocide. 
But there's another king, the true king, worshipped by the Magi. And look what's said about him from of old. When the theological council is convened by Herod, here's what they tell him about this messianic king. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This king is a shepherd who, instead of exploiting and scheming for power, he will care for his sheep, who, instead of murdering for his own gain, will lay down his life. This is a common theme in Scripture. The messianic king, when contrasted with the the corrupt, power-hungry rulers of this age, the false shepherds who feed themselves at the expense of the sheep, who rule from a place of fear or greed, or self-reliance, but the true king, he's the one who will set everything right and shepherd his people by his gentle hand, who will give himself for them, who will rule among them as the king in their midst and heal them. The king's hands are the hands of healing, as the hands of Aragorn and the Houses of healing in Gondor healed the wounded, so Jesus heals his sheep who have been wounded at the hands of the greedy and the power-hungry of this world. Chief among them, of course, is the great enemy of God's sheep who prowls around like a lion waiting to devour. Look, today there's a lot of talk about the abuse of institutional authority, and rightly so. And maybe because of some experiences that you've had, you know, you think about this kingship metaphor in the Christian faith and you think, That's, that, that one's tough for me. Jesus can be my savior, he can be my friend, he can, he can be near to me and help me when I need him, but I can't call him king because I'm not sure I like the way he rules. You know, some of these laws in the Bible, they seem out of date Or I don't like these new elders we've just appointed as his under-shepherds. Or I've been hurt way too much in my life by those who are supposed to be gentle and lowly shepherds, but who really act more like wolves. Let me just assure you from the word of God that the true king is not like that. You see, the true king is known by several names. Let me list a few of them. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Good Shepherd, Bread of Life, Light of the World, Healer of Nations, Resurrection and the Life, the Firstborn from the Dead. And do you know how the King is depicted at the end of the story? When he comes to defeat sin and the devil and to reunite his people in glory, let me read to you from Revelation chapter 19. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, 
King of kings, Lord of lords. See, I can, I can promise you this. No one, no one that has ever lived is more righteously angry about the abuse of institutional authority than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one hates unjust war and killing more than him. From Ukraine to Israel to the streets of Dallas, no one hates sexual abuse at the hands of caregivers more than Jesus. No one hates injustice more than Jesus, and he is not idle, for even now his patience for the wicked to repent is waning, and the dawn of a new age of righteousness is nearer than ever before. He is a good king. He's a true king, and he loves you, and he gave his life for yours. So, what kind of response does this king deserve? What sort of gift? Well, he deserves our worship. Look, these these foreign astronomers, we don't know if they even knew everything about the messianic hope and the fulfillment in this little baby before them, but they know this. He deserves their worship. The text tells us they fell down and they worshipped him. They prostrated themselves before him. They placed themselves under his authority, his greatness, his dignity as king. The first gift they gave him was their worship. You know, it's, it's interesting to imagine what the lives of these wise men looked like after they encountered Jesus. A friend who knew I was preaching this text shared with me this week T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi. And in this poem, Eliot imagines what what change was wrought in the hearts of these wise men when they returned to their homes after encountering Jesus. And he says this, We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. See, Eliot imagines the loneliness of these wise men. After coming to worship the king of the universe, they return to their homes and they find their neighbors holding in their hands the idols they worshipped. And they they found that strange. An encounter with Jesus changes your worship, and it also changes your values. That's the point of the gifts here. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's been a lot written about the symbolism of these gifts. Were they meant to communicate certain aspects of who Jesus is? Was the myrrh to be considered embalming for Jesus' coming death? Well, this much is certain. These gifts, they're all meant as gifts of extravagance and homage. Gold as a precious metal, frankincense as a perfume, myrrh to perfume someone's garments. These were expensive commodities, gifts fit for a king, perhaps brought from the treasuries of the kings these wise men represented, or maybe even from their own accounts, but they were costly, and they demonstrated the worth and the position of their recipient. They recognized This king is greater than we are. You see, the gifts we give to this king demonstrates his greatness in our hearts. They communicate what we value. So the last few years, Alicia and I have um, agreed not to get one another Christmas gifts, although I think one year I broke that rule and she got really mad at me. But we've agreed not 
to get each other Christmas gifts so that we could really put all our Christmas budget into our girls. And uh, it's not like they get the moon or everything. We have limited resources. So we want to, uh, to demonstrate uh, something by where we put those resources. What are we demonstrating? Uh, that we spoil our kids? I hope not. But we're, we're, we're demonstrating or trying to demonstrate the value that we place on them and getting them some things that they need, some things that will bring them joy, that we value that more than we value like, man, I, I saw that thing and I really want you to get it for me for Christmas. That said, if you want to get me a Christmas gift next year because you know Alicia won't, then uh, be my guest. Um, no, I'm kidding. We make choices, don't we? we? We delight to praise what we enjoy, and we delight to give to what we enjoy. Our gifts, the gifts of our tithes, our offerings, our service, our time, our energy, and our other limited resources, they communicate something about what we value. Do you know how I know my daughters love me? I have a growing art gallery at my office of their best work. And on a weekly basis... I'll come home from work and they'll greet me with glee and present that day's creation and they'll say, Daddy, this is for you. Now, what I love about that is that they're at the age where they're just learning that they can make things. Like, I have this thing in me that I can create by drawing or gluing or cutting out or painting. They have that in themselves. That's something they have to give. And they, they delight to use those things to make me something. And... Stop by the office sometime. I'll show you their, their, their best work. What has the king given you? What do you create? What do you have to give him in response to his goodness, love, his truth, his beauty? I don't know about you, but I could take a lesson from a three and a five-year-old and, and start thinking a little bit more about what I can give to Jesus rather than how much I need him to fix my stuff. The reality is the king has already transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom. And he generously gives you more and more of himself as you journey with him on the road of discipleship. Even as we come now to the chief of his generous gifts, his own presence at the Lord's table. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious, generous Father, we give you thanks for giving good gifts to your children. We give you thanks for Jesus and sending him the ultimate gift. We give you thanks for his grace and generosity. We give you thanks for inviting us into your family. We give you thanks even now for the good gift of your table. And we ask that as we eat and drink here, you would stir in our hearts a response to your generosity that we might be thankful, that we might leave here to delight in praising you this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.